Well, let's begin this morning by reading our text for today. We're in Matthew chapter uh, 5, and we're going to look at verses 43 to 48. I called this sermon, The Goal of Righteousness. Matthew 5, starting in verse 43, our Lord says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to start by asking you a question. What is the ultimate goal of salvation? What is the ultimate goal of of salvation. I, I mean, what is God trying to do when he saves somebody? Now, there's more than one thing happening in salvation, so there's, there's probably multiple ways that we could answer that question. When God saves someone, he saves them from sin. He saves us out of sin, and he delivers us from sin. He delivers us from the bondage and power of sin. He changes our nature in the new birth, which sets us free from our sin. Another aspect of salvation is that it delivers us from the penalty of sin. Sin earned us judgment. Sin separated us from God. Sin brought us under God's wrath. And salvation now delivers us from the wrath and judgment of God. We were on our way to hell, and salvation frees us so that we will no longer go to hell. Salvation delivers us from God's judgment and brings us then into fellowship, sweet fellowship with God. But when I ask, what is the ultimate goal of salvation, I want to go even deeper. Why does God save sinners? He was under no obligation to save sinners. God could have remained perfectly just, holy, righteous, merciful, and loving, and sent every sinner to hell. He was under no obligation to save anybody. So why did God choose to save some from the corrupted, hell-deserving humanity? There's this, this group of humanity that all of us deserve hell, and God chose to save some of us from that mass. And the ultimate answer is really the the same as the answer to the question, why does God do anything that he does? Why does God do anything that he does? And what's the answer? Why does God do what he does? He does it for his glory. Now, I need to resist the temptation to, to dig into that more. God does what he does to show his creatures how great and how good he is. And there's no greater end for God to pursue than for his own glory. But now think about this in regard to your salvation. 
See, God is glorifying himself by saving sinners like you and me. He designed the whole scope of salvation to show off, if, if I can kind of say it that way. He designed everything in salvation to show off his goodness and his greatness. Every part from his election of certain individuals that he foreknew before the foundation of the world, his sending his son, the son's perfect life and subsequent death to make atonement for our sin, the Holy Spirit's work of regenerating those people through the preaching of the word, every aspect of salvation was designed to glorify God. But when it's all done, what will be the result? What happens to us when salvation is complete in eternity? What will we be? And the answer is that we will be like Christ. We will be like Christ who is himself God in human form. We could put it like this then. God is restoring his image in those he is saving. He is perfecting his image in us. He is making us righteous. He is making us like Christ. And being like Christ, of course, means that we will bring glory to God. You see, God has adopted us into his family and and now he's working to conform us to the image of his son so that we can bear the family resemblance. And in this age, that work is called sanctification. Sanctification is the process in which the disciple of Christ is more and more free from sin and more and more made like Christ in their day-to-day life. That's what God is doing right now in this age in our sanctification. In, in sanctification, we grow more and more Christ-like. And in the next age, when we are in, in the heavenly realms, when we are with Christ in the next age, we will instantly be made like Christ in what Scripture calls glorification. Now, I don't know about you, but this gets me excited because God is working in me and he's working in you to make us like him. And if you're a believer, this is wonderful news because you have come to know God through his son and because of that, you love God and you hate sin. And you are being made, you are being transformed into the image of the God that you love. And in our text today, we can see our Savior, Jesus Christ, directing us towards this amazing goal. He's exhorting us to be sanctified. He's exhorting us to be made more like himself in our day-to-day life. He's commanding us to be like the Heavenly Father. He's directing us to live out the life that he has given us in our salvation. And this passage then breaks down into, into really, I guess we could say it breaks down into two parts, just like the, the previous five sections. We have the quote from the Old Testament, you have heard that it was said. And then we have the, the kind of the correction from Jesus. So we have the quote from the Old Testament that gives the view of the scribes and Pharisees. And then we have what the Lord teaches You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, that's kind of been the pattern that we've been in for the last five weeks. This is the the sixth time that Jesus follows that pattern. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. 
But today, as we look at this text, I've decided to break the passage up a little bit differently to make it more applicable, to, to kind of help us to see the application of this passage. I want to frame the message as five directions for true righteousness. Five directions for true righteousness. These are five commandments from the Lord to every believer. And if we put these into practice, it will result in the kind of righteous lives that we are called to as disciples of Christ. Everyone should be able to leave here today then knowing exactly what the Lord directs us to do. There should be, should be crystal clear, here is what I'm supposed to do when I leave church today. Here's how I'm supposed to obey what God says And these are then five directions for true righteousness. I'll just give them to you now. First one is we are to reject falsehood. False teaching is to be rejected in our lives. Then we're to love our enemies in verse 4. Jesus says, says, love your enemies. In verse 45, we are to be sons of our father. In verses 46 and 47, there's this, this call to really do more, to, to go beyond what natural men can do in regards of righteousness. We'll see what we mean by that when we get to verse 46 and 47. And then finally, that call in verse 48 to pursue perfection. And so these are five directions for true righteousness. And the first one is, number one, we are to reject falsehood. And that's the, the command that I'm, I'm bringing out, the direction that I'm bringing out from verse 43. Reject falsehood. What we have in verse 43 is the false teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees twisted God's word so that it, so that it no longer said what God said. They had corrupted scripture. And something that's really important to realize is that whenever we misunderstand Scripture, it always impacts our behavior. Behind bad behavior is always wrong thinking, wrong understanding. When we don't understand rightly God's Word, it has an effect on how we live. Whenever we're, we're misinformed or, or we, we believe things incorrectly, it, it has an effect on the way that we live our day to day lives. And so sound doctrine is the foundation for godliness. You can't have godliness without sound doctrine and understanding of God's word and God's world. This is why it's so important to know and understand and believe God's word. This is why it's so important that we we know our Bibles and we understand scripture. See, the Pharisees had mistaught God's word in regards to this area of love. They were teaching according to verse 43. Jesus says there, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So they were teaching, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now the first part of this quote comes from Leviticus. Listen to Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. It says this, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. Now notice that 
the context of Leviticus 19, it, it does, does seem to involve a brother, or it says they're the sons of your people. And this is who the scribes and the Pharisees saw as a neighbor, the sons of the people, the, the, a, a brother, a fellow Israelite. But even just a few verses later, in the same chapter, listen to what God said. This is Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Same thing there. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. And so Israel was to love their neighbor brother And they were to love their neighbor who sojourned in their land. But the teaching of the day was love your neighbor. In in other words, love fellow Israelites and hate your enemy. And notice that they dropped off that last bit. Love your neighbor as yourself. So when they taught this, they they, they missed, they, they left out that as yourself. They, they, they removed a part of scripture as they would teach on this. Love your neighbor, not as yourself, but just love your neighbor. And, and you see what happens when you do that. It turns the whole verse into a question of who should be loved, who should be loved instead of how to love. You see that? Instead of Instead of how to love, love as yourself, they've, they've now changed this to love your neighbor. And, and the question is, well, who do I love? Oh, I love my neighbor. And then they taught that the neighbor was your fellow Israelite. And so instead of this call to love others as oneself, the focus is on who is my neighbor. And that's the problem with the, the teaching of the day. At least that's the first part of the problem. They cut out part of the verse. Now next... They added to scripture because nowhere does the Old Testament say and hate your enemy. You won't find that anywhere in your Old Testament and hate your enemy. Now there's, there's verses that talk about the saints hating what God hates. There's even verses and passages that invite God's wrath on his enemies. For example, and, and I don't know if you want to turn here, but Psalm 15 Psalm 15 asks a question, who can dwell on Yahweh's holy hill? Who can dwell on Yahweh's holy hill? In other words, who can have close fellowship with God? And verse 2 answers this, quote, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he who does not slander with his tongue nor nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And then it says this, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And so a a godly Israelite who can have fellowship with God is is somebody who does all of these things, but he, he despises those who don't honor the Lord, who don't fear the Lord. There's this hatred for sin in this person's life. A righteous person who lives in close fellowship with God is one who loves what God loves and hates what God hates. Proverbs 8.13 says, for example, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. 
pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. And so to fear the Lord, to fear God means to hate evil and to hate everything which is contrary to God. Psalm 139 asks, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Just before that same psalm, Psalm 139, verse 19 says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. So we see that there's, there's scriptures where the godly person despises the wickedness and the enemies of God. Psalm 69 is even more bold. It says this in verse 22 to 24. May their table become, may their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. Now the best way, I I believe, to understand these verses is by seeing them as expression of God's wrath against his enemies. God hates evil. God hates sin and God hates all things therefore that are contrary to him. The more we are like God, the more we will hate evil and sin and all such things. But the Pharisees seem to have taken this too far. And they, they seem to have, have personalized the whole thing so that they, they hated everybody who wasn't in entire agreement with them. And there seems to be no room in their theology for repentance or for mercy. Ultimately, God will judge the wicked. We know that from Scripture. But until that judgment, there's hope for everyone who turns from their sin. And the Pharisees, they ignored that hope. And they hated anyone that they viewed as unrighteous. And they loved their fellow Pharisees. And they hated everyone else, especially non-Jews. And they justified this hatred by taking verses like the ones that we just read out of context. And they ended up thinking that they were righteous when in fact... They were sinning in their evil hatred of everyone that wasn't entirely in agreement with them. And that's the danger of false teaching. You can think that you are doing right when in fact you're doing exactly the opposite. And so many people are, are deceived and they, they think they're doing good when actually they're sinning against the Lord. And that's why it's so important to make sure that what you believe is what scripture actually teaches. And so I encourage you not to believe something because I say it. Never believe something because I say it or or never believe something because some teacher says it. You need to make sure that that's what God's word says. We need to reject false teaching and false teachers. We need to search the scriptures to ensure that what we are being taught is right and according to God's word. Because whenever we build on a a bad foundation, the building will be suspect. Doctrine, biblical doctrine, is the foundation for godly living. 
And so the first direction for righteousness then is that we need to be people that reject falsehood, that search the scriptures, that, that, that understand the truth of God's word because it's, it's so important for our, our lives. Godliness flows from sound doctrine and you can't have godliness without sound doctrine. And so reject false teaching, reject falsehood. Number two then, the second direction is in verse 44 and that's number two, we are to love our enemies. Jesus says in verse 44, but I say to you, instead of love your neighbor, hate your enemies, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says we are to love our enemies. This is the essence of true righteousness. We have to be careful that we, that we don't pull in as we think about this an unbiblical view of love. You see, God's love still fits with those psalms of judgment that we just read. Jesus, who perfectly exemplifies this love that we are to have, he also pronounced woe on the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. And we'll, we'll get to there eventually. Matthew chapter 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. We can love our enemies and still rejoice in the fact that God will judge them one day if they do not repent and turn from their sin. We can love them. We, we can, the, the love that we show them is in a hope that they will turn to God and be saved. And love here means that we give sacrificially to benefit them. The parallel passage in Luke, Luke 6.27 says this, But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. We are to love even our enemies. We are to do good to them even if they hate us. Now last week we saw in verse 39 that we're not to resist an evil person. We aren't to retaliate, we aren't to seek vengeance, we aren't to seek revenge. Again, verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And so that was the teaching that we saw from last week, but the teaching in this text, in our text for this week, goes beyond even that. We are not only to not resist, we are to do positive good towards our enemies. We're not, we're not only to not resist them, we're to do them good. We're to love them sacrificially. We're to bless those who persecute us. We're to, we're, we're to bless those who do us harm. And we do so because we know that they are lost sinners. We, we do so knowing that they are lost and praying for their salvation. You see, the Christian has a broader perspective. We see everybody in light of salvation, or at least we should. We see the world as blinded by the devil. We ourselves were once under his influence. We ourselves were once in bondage to our sin. And so we pray that God would deliver these people who are being used by the devil. (coughs) We were slaves of sin once too. And so we can sympathize with our persecutors and we can seek to win them to the Lord through our love. Now this kind of love is only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit in our our lives. We must be born again 
by the Holy Spirit. And then we must be filled by that same Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, Galatians 5.22. You know, if you think about it, to give ourselves up in love for those who love us, that's, that's hard enough, right? Just, just loving our families is difficult at times. But here, Jesus calls us to go even further. We're to love those who are our enemies. To love our friends and family is difficult in itself, but to love our enemies is impossible apart from the grace of God in our lives. And still though, we are commanded as disciples of Christ to love our enemies. We're to seek what makes for their good. And always at the top of that list, what, what is going to be good for the unbeliever, for the enemy that's, that's persecuting us for righteousness sake? What's going to be good for them? The top of that list is that they would come to know God and that, that we would proclaim the gospel to them that they could be saved. And so the, the goodness that we're, we're seeking as we love our enemies is that they would come to know the greatest good and that is God himself. And so we pray for them. There's, there's these two commands in verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We love them and we pray for them. We pray, it doesn't say what to pray, but specifically I think at the top of that list is to pray for their salvation, pray that their eyes would be open, pray that they would come to know the Lord, that they would turn from their sin and that they would escape the judgment of hell. This is what the Lord asks us to do. So the next direction then for true righteousness is in verse 45 And I called that be sons. Verse 45, be sons, number three. Jesus says we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, the idea here isn't that we would be sons or, or become sons by loving our enemies. Notice in the text it says that he is already, he is already your father who is in heaven. So we're not made sons. We are already sons of God. The idea here is that by loving our enemies... We have the quality of sons. We, we show ourselves to be sons of God. We are, we are now acting like our father. We are acting like sons of our father who is in heaven. And so we, we love so that we can be sons, so that we can live like what we are in our salvation. We are sons and daughters of God if we are believers. Now we are called to live according to who we are. Theologically, this idea that we are God's children is called adoption. We've been adopted into God's family. We are now his children. And this adoption is really the highest privilege of our salvation. But now we need to live according to our family name. We need to imitate the character of our father God. And we bear the family name and so we should reflect the character of our God and father. And the way to do that is to love our enemies because God loves 
his enemies. He is good to all of mankind. He makes, it says, his son rise. Notice whose son it is. God owns the son. God is the owner of the son. It's his son. And he could keep his son from rising on the evil people of the world. It might actually be easier for God to prevent the sun from shining on evil people than it is for him to allow the sun to shine on evil people in his goodness and righteousness and holiness. Nothing is too hard for him. He is all powerful. And if he wanted to, he could easily separate the wicked and keep the sun from them. It is his son after all. He also, it says, sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, of course, rain is viewed as a a good thing here. Before irrigation and systems of water and, and pumps, people depended more on the rain than maybe they do today. God is the one who sends the rain. He's in control of the rain. And he might control it indirectly through high and low pressure systems. I don't understand any of that. But, but Jesus views God as the ultimate cause of rain. He sends rain. And he, he sends it on the just and on the unjust. He, he sends rain on all of the fields. He sends rain when, when he sends rain. He doesn't typically send it only to just and holy farmers. Holy farmers get rain on their crops Unholy farmers get rain too. All of them get the rain from God. Psalm 145 verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. God is good to all according to scripture. And we've come to expect this. But this is really truly remarkable that God is good to all. When we understand his holy hatred of sin, his righteous indignation, his disdain for all that is contrary to his nature, it should make us marvel that he does anything good for sinners. You see, God is good to his enemies and his goodness should lead them to repentance according to Romans 2 and verse 4. And we too, if we're going to be like God, we should be good to all, regardless of how they treat us. Children should be like their parents, and God's children should be like God. Ephesians chapter 5 is a great parallel passage. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We are God's beloved children. And so we should be imitators of him, especially in this area of imitating him in love and goodness to all. Christ is the ultimate example for us in this, in this love. In love, he gave himself up for us. He paid the penalty for our sin and his life was a sweet offering to God and our lives as well should be lived as a sacrificial offering to God and in love we should give ourselves up for the benefit of others including those who set themselves against us as our enemies and this is the only way to be sons and daughters of God the way to live as sons and daughters of God 
the fourth direction for true righteousness is something I, I never really noticed before. Let's look at the verses there, verses 46 and 47. It says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, Jesus' explanation here is, is really brilliant. If all you do is love those who love you, or if you only greet your group of people, what are you doing more than others? And the implication is this. Disciples of Jesus Christ should do more than others, and they will do more than others. And so the fourth direction for true righteousness, I called it simply do more. Number four in your outline, do more. And this really stings if you think about this. Just think about it. If you only love your neighbor, whoever, whoever that is, but you hate your enemy, your so-called righteousness is no better than that of tax collectors and Gentiles. Ouch. Tax collectors were viewed as traitors and the worst type of sinners. They betrayed their Jewish brethren to collect taxes for the Romans. And, and the deal was that they could keep anything beyond the amount set by Rome. And so they could, they could tax any amount and whatever was over and above, they kept for themselves. This is a system which encouraged corruption. And so the Gentile, the tax collectors were, were hated and traitors and, and sinful worldly people that, that stole from the Jews and gave to the Romans. They were sellouts. Gentiles were non-Jews who didn't know the one true God. And, and because they didn't know the one true God, they engaged in all types of sinful deeds. To be a Gentile or a tax collector then was to be a, a sinner. And so if your love is no more than theirs, what kind of love is that? But what's really profound in this is the implication this has for the true believer. You see, Jesus is saying that our lives should transcend what is normal behavior amongst the world. A disciple of Jesus Christ should be different. They should be special, exemplary. There should be something about us that goes beyond what is normal or what is average or what is expected. And the reason for this difference isn't really ultimately about us. We're different because of God's saving and transforming grace in our lives. In verse 47, it says, what more are you doing? What more are you doing? And, and the word translated more refers to something not ordinarily encountered. You could translate it extraordinary or remarkable. And so brothers, let me ask you and sisters, what are you doing that is remarkable? What are you doing in regards to righteousness that is extraordinary, that shows the glory of God? Wow, what a, what a thing that we are called to. What are you doing that is remarkable? Our love should be extraordinary compared to those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. 
the unbeliever, and even our unbelieving enemy should look at us and think their love is unlike anything else. You see, we are the children of God. Now, verse 46 has a similar question. What is, what reward do you have? Look at verse 46, or actually, let me go back again to verse 47. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? And this, this idea of greeting was, was kind of a, a prestigious thing in the ancient Near East. And, and people would be greeted based on their status and standing. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they loved these, these elaborate greetings that, were, that kind of showed their honor. And so if you only greet, if you only honor those who honor you, what, what are you doing more than others? And then in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And this reward idea reminds us that we will be rewarded in the resurrection for our service to the Lord. And this, is, this should be part of our motivation we will be rewarded in eternity for our sacrifices that are, are made for Jesus' sake. Whatever we give up for Christ's sake will be greatly rewarded. And this reminds us even of what we saw in Matthew 5 and verse 10, where Jesus said, blessed are those, you know, in a, in a happy state are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if we only do what others do, what reward will we deserve? But if we go beyond by God's grace in our lives, we will be richly rewarded. And that should motivate you to faithful service and love towards everyone in your life for the Lord's sake. That reward should be part of our motivation. We do it to glorify God. But remember that as we give up things in this life, we will be rewarded in eternity for our faithful service. And so the fourth direction for righteousness is, is to do more. We are more than natural if we are God's children. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect in this life, but it does mean that we have the ability to put off sin and be more and more like Christ in our day-to-day lives. There's a similar statement in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 4. Remember there, the, the Corinthians were arguing over their favorite preacher. And they thought they, were, they thought they were super spiritual as they argued about the best preacher and the one that they preferred. They thought they were super spiritual in the whole thing. But Paul rebukes them in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians. And he says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 2 to 4, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. You are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What a great question. Are you, you're behaving 
taking all are you are you not being merely human and the idea here is that as born again believers in Jesus Christ we're called to be beyond what we would call a, only a human way or or to live beyond merely human we're we're not merely human we are born again new creatures in Christ that have the holy spirit of god living in us and christ living in us and transforming us by his grace brethren we're called to be more than merely human if we are in christ and if he is in us And so the fourth direction again was to do more. Now the fifth direction for true righteousness is the summary of the six verses that we're looking at today as well as as really the summary of this whole section that began in verse 17. And this is in verse 48. I called this pursue perfection. Pursue perfection. Matthew 5:48 You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This final exhortation is directed strongly at Jesus's disciples. There's a there's an emphasis in the Greek text on the word you. And so it's it's you, you disciples of mine, you children of God, you who bear my name, you who have decided to follow me, you must be perfect as your father is perfect. Now the word therefore reminds us of all that we've seen from verse 17 forward. Really, we could go back even to the beginning of this sermon. We've seen over and over again in this sermon of our Lord this insistence that the Christian is a different kind of person. We are poor in spirit. We mourn over sin. We are meek and that meant that that we trust God and serve him and look for him to defend us and care for us in this world. <clears throat> we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to grow. We we are those people who see our lack of righteousness in our life and we want to be more like Christ in our life. We are therefore through our salvation made merciful. We are pure in heart. That is we have a a single desire to see God, to know him and to live for him. We are peacemakers, that is we have peace with God and we bring others into that peace that we ourselves have. We are also persecuted for righteousness sake. We are persecuted on account of Christ. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are those who teach and obey the law and the prophets as it is fulfilled in Christ. Our righteousness is to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Our righteousness does exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We are not merely concerned about keeping the law externally. We want to please God with our lives by obeying him from the heart. And we saw this in the six examples from verse 21 to verse 48 that murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge, and today even how we treat our enemies in all of these areas, we want to obey God from the heart and follow his commandments. The disciple of Christ or the the citizen of his coming kingdom is a transformed person. How could we not be if we have if we've come to know this great God of ours? He has saved us and he is still saving us and working in our lives. Our heavenly Father is perfect. He cannot improve for the better. He is 
already perfect. Our, our Father that we are to, to, to follow, to exemplify, He is perfect. He cannot improve for the better. He's already perfect. And He cannot, being perfect, change for the worse because He is eternally perfect. To put it in the way of the church father Anselm, He is the one than whom none greater can be conceived. Our God is perfect in wisdom. He is perfect in strength. He is perfect in goodness, in grace, in love, in mercy. He is perfect in holiness. He is perfect in knowledge. He knows the past, present, and future in one simple eternal act. He is perfect in truth and faithfulness. He is perfect in justice, perfect in righteousness. Our God is the perfect being. He is perfect being, eternally who he is in all of his glory. He is the perfection of all perfection, and we are his children. And we are called in this text to imitate him. The context here makes it clear that we're to pursue his perfection in the moral sphere of our lives. The context is righteousness. Our pursuit then is, is godliness in every area of our li- lives. We're to be like our Father who is in heaven. This godliness or this righteousness is lived out especially in our relationships with others. If you just think through this whole section that we've looked at, every bit of it has to do with our relationships with others. Whether they are evil or whether they're our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to live righteously and holily in our relationships with others. Now we know and, and Scripture is clear that we will not be perfect until glorification. Remember, we just reminded ourselves, even Matthew 5 and verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In this age, we hunger and thirst after righteousness. We don't have as much as we want, but in the kingdom, we will be satisfied. We will be utterly like Christ then. But what this means then is that our goal, even in this age, even today, our goal is God's character. Our aim is to be like him. We strive after holiness. We are those who long for holiness in our lives. We diligently pursue righteousness, and that means that we fight against our sin. We put it to death, and we seek to be clothed in Christ's likeness. The goal of our righteousness is being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And the goal of righteousness is that we are to pursue the goal, sorry, the goal of righteousness is, is what we are to pursue for God's glory. God is working towards this end in our lives. He is working to make us righteous and we are to pursue it with him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this amazing call. We thank you that we are your sons and daughters through Christ that because of our salvation, you have adopted us as your children. You have made us part of your family. 
And we pray that just as you have called us to in this text, that you have called us to be perfect, even as you are perfect. Father, we know that we fall incredibly short of that. But we pray and and we thank you that you would call us to this thing. And we pray that you would perfect us and that you would make us more like Christ. Forgive us for where we have fallen short and, and work in our lives, change our hearts, transform us even more to the image of Christ. We know that this is what you're doing in our salvation, that this is your end goal. And we pray that you would speed it in our lives even today. We pray that we would glorify you with Christ-likeness in our lives and that you would help us to love even those who are difficult to love, even our enemies, even our closest people, Father. We pray that we would love them the way that you loved us, the way that Christ loved us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.